Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Drinks and Data podcast, where you're going to hear expertly crafted conversation that entertains and informs. As usual, everyone, my name is Sean Helwig. I am one of the hosts of Drinks and Data. I am going to be joined today by my partner in wine, the Sheriff Flanders of Data himself, Mr. Cannon Kozad. Hey, Sean. Cannon, how are you? I am great. How are you? Hello, dear listeners out there in podcast land. Sean, how are you doing today? I'm, you know, I'm, I'm doing all right. I'm doing all right. Um, you know, it is October and it is also, you know, for some people, they care about Major League Baseball. I will admit I am not a huge Major League Baseball fan, um, but I am a data guy and I do need to do a shout out. Um, even though I'm in Wisconsin, this pains me to my core. I'm going to do a shout out to the Minnesota Twins who ended the longest postseason losing streak in professional sports history just a couple of nights ago when they broke their 18-game losing streak and ultimately culminated with a win in their playoff series in Major League Baseball. So congratulations to the Minnesota Twins. I have some clients up in Minneapolis. I'm sure they're going to be happy that I mentioned that. They did. That's and a good. I, that's a good. That's a good call out, Sean. And and it's one that actually pains me a bit because my hometown team, my primary hometown team, is the Kansas City Royals, and we ended the season with the historically worst record that we've ever had as a ball club. I'm we're sorry. Really, we're but really, you know, really, you really know they keep score for a reason. <laughs> like they keep track. So, you know, and this is why, because, you know, you wouldn't know this was the worst if we weren't keeping track. So this is why our our baseball team is, in fact, so hapless that all we really want to talk about is our football team, (laughs) which is the opposite of hapless here in the Kansas City area. Sorry, right, I could go. Questions. I could go on and on about. We this. have digressed. We have digressed. We have already digressed. I want everyone to know that the topics for our show today, just so you know, we are going to cover in our drinks segment. We are going to be talking a little bit more about some of the uh, I'll call them the hijinks, travails, and uh, fun from our recent European road trip. We'll get into some more of the details on that. That'll be in our drink segment. And in our data segment today, we are going to have part two of data strategy fundamentals. So uh, please hang on with us. Um, I think you're going to find the the five fundamentals to be pretty interesting, hopefully very useful and applicable to your business. So uh, that's going to be our schedule for today. Um, Per usual, we kick off each episode sharing what is on each other's desk that we are enjoying as we do each of the podcasts. So, Cannon, I'm going to start with you. Uh, What's on the desk that you are imbibing in today? So, Sean, I am drinking. As you know, I am a fan. I am a whiskey fan. And today I am drinking one of what I think is the most exciting whiskeys being distilled in the U.S. of A. today. It's from a distillery in Tucson, Arizona, named Whiskey Del Bach. It is an American single malt, so it is a whiskey made in the style of Scotch whiskey. But rather than roasting their barley with peat or wood or something else, they, well, they they do roast it with wood, but they roast it with an indigenous wood to the Arizona area, mesquite. And it is an absolutely wonderful dram. 
and I am happy to feature it today. My older brother lives in Tucson. I have visited the distillery once, and I look forward to doing so again. And they are making the most wonderful whiskey. I encourage everyone to to seek it out. How about you? What are you drinking today? All right. Well, thank you. We are going to do the uh, we're going to do live sound effects for the first time on the show today. Wow. Yeah. Here we go. I hope this works. There we oh, go. Man, big dollar, big dollars. Our our effects big budget. Dollars. Our effects exactly. budget just tripled with that one effect. We, we we didn't even need to ask producer Andy to crop in some sound effects for us. Those were real, unedited, like live. It's going to be hard um, so, to top that. I know, I know. My drink choice today is Moose Drool Brown Ale from the Big Sky Brewing Company up in Missoula, Montana. <laughs> Did you say <laughs> Moose? Did you say Moose Drool? I said moose drool. Moose drool. Moose drool. Well, it, be, it does beg the question, do mooses actually drool? Oh, heck yes. Yeah. They drool you right mean, into the can that you're drinking. Right <laughs> and there it's you actual, go. It's actual moose drool. That's why it's $4,000 a six-pack. Because it's, <laughs> <laughs> it's not exactly cheap to collect moose drool. Right, man. I mean, those, those suckers, I bet those suckers bite. Uh, well, or kick or stomp, but yeah. no, I have, like I said, I have had a chance to spend some time at the Big Sky Brewing Company in Missoula, um, the home of Moose Drool. It is a real thing. Um, it's fabulous. There is a, um, my, my wife, I will give her a call out here, a shout out. She is a big fan of brown ales. Like that is her go-to beer. And so I am asked to find brown ales whenever I take her out and she's feeling like a beer. And candidly, brown ales are, I think they're on the decline. There's, we're getting fewer and fewer brown ales. I think the pale ales have kind of, and, and you had all these other things, the sours and everything else that have kind of taken over the market. So um, it's, it, it's just a great, smooth, beautiful brown ale. Um, it is one of her absolute favorites. So she's lamenting that I stole one from her out of the fridge. Um, when we start our mixology videos that are coming out here, um, the mixology station for the drinks and data studio in Wisconsin, you will pay close attention on the videos and you may actually see a moose drool beer sign behind me when I start doing those. So pay attention to those and see how it goes. So Sean, let me ask you a question. You are in, if memory serves, lovely Madison, Wisconsin. Is that correct? That is correct. Now, when you are shopping for moose drool or even wine, where do you shop up in Madison? Well, I, I like to shop online. And, you know, I will say one of my one of my favorite places to go, Canon, is I like to shop online at underdogwinekc.com. I'm pleased that you said that, Sean, because... Underdog Wine KC is actually our sponsor for our Drinks and Data podcast today, as they have been for several episodes. And where I am here in Kansas City, Missouri, lovely Kansas City, Missouri, Underdog Wine is really the finest boutique wine store, not only in town, but in the Midwest. And I encourage everyone to, to seek it out. Underdog features small production family-owned wineries, and whether you've got 10 bucks to spend or 200 bucks to spend the proprietors at 
Underdog will make sure that you get the absolute best and most unique bottle for your dollars. Because as any wine person, and I am a wine person, as you know, Sean, will tell you, it is absolutely the easiest thing in the world to spend 60 bucks on a bottle of wine and have it be good. And in fact, if you spend that much on a bottle of wine and it's not good, that's a whole different discussion. Much, much more difficult to spend 16 bucks on a bottle of wine that tastes like you spent 40 bucks on a bottle of wine. And Underdog Wine here in KC absolutely specializes in just exactly that sort of curation, if you will. And I encourage everyone to check them out at underdogwinekc.com. That link is on the Drinks in Data website. And look them up. You will be very, very pleased. So, Sean, most of our listeners, or at least some of our listeners may recall that you and I were recently together over in lovely London, England, UK. We were over meeting with some clients. We were over uh, speaking at a conference on data management. You spoke about data strategy. I spoke about the trends in data analytics as it relates to artificial intelligence. And it was just a rollicking good time. And I think for the drinks segment today, we'll focus on the rollicking good time portion of what I just said, rather than the data uh, component of that. But after after uh, we left, or after you and your wonderful wife left London, you went over to Portugal for a few days. And I know while you were over there, you were successful in procuring some bottles of wine, perhaps even some bottles of Portugal's favorite export, port wine, which is one of my favorites. Thought maybe you would tell, tell us about your experience procuring those wines over in Portugal, and then most specifically your experience bringing them back to the U.S. with you. So... Canon, I am. I'm going to try and be mindful of time on this particular episode because I could talk <laughs> for a shockingly long time about our experiences with this. But but I'm I'm going to kind of I'm going to share one one key highlight. Well, I'll two key highlights. First of all, we got a chance to spend some time in Porto, um, or locally they call it O Porto, in Portugal, and it is the it's the home of port wine. The Douros River runs right through Porto, and there's a whole story or backstory about how they would, you know, vent the wine up in the valley and then put it on boats and big casks and ship it down the river. And as they got close to the ocean, they wanted a place to store it. So they actually built caves into the south side of the river, into the mountains, and they would store their port casks there so that they could age. And for those of you who know anything about, you know, port wine, you can get tawny ports that are aged for you know, 10, 20, 25, 40 plus years um, in, you know, for all kinds of different tastes, et cetera. So Laura and I, my wife, got a chance to do some tastings that w- when we were there. And um, we're just going to kind of call it like it is. We're not huge port fans, but we're like, it's like when in Porto, try port, right? So um, we did we did enjoy enough of them that when we left Portugal, 
you know, you know it's kind of like, you know, airports are kind of like Disneyland now, you know, they make you like when you're in the international terminal, you have to like go through the gift shop in order Absolutely. to get on a plane. High end right? shopping malls with transportation hubs, you know, melded into them. <laughs> That's exactly it. So, so we're going through the duty free section and, you know, we, we have this, this brain synapse. We're like, you know, why don't we pick up a sample pack of like five port wines, bring them home. And when our, you know, our, our grown up adult kids are home coming up here soon for Christmas, we'll have our own port wine tasting with them and see what they like. You know, it's like kind of let us reminisce and be nostalgic about our trip to Portugal. So we find this fantastic wooden boxed set of five bottles of port wine and we buy them at duty free and we, you know, check out, they put them in the sealed bag you know, it's clearly duty free, the receipts in the bag and everything. And we and we put it in our big shopping bag and we go on our merry way. Right. We get on the plane. We start our journey over. Well, our journey happens to take us into the Newark airport in New Jersey as our stop on our way to you know us as our, in our final destination here in Wisconsin. In Newark, New Jersey. We have to uh, go through customs. And then you have to take all your luggage, all your stuff, and you have to like recheck it through security because you're now taking a domestic flight. Right. And for those of you who are not international travelers, this might be news to you, but you know, it's, take take this as a travel tip. It's a so bit of a hassle. Have, yeah, it's a bit of a hassle, exactly. So we put this stuff through security, and it's in the bag. And I asked the guy, I said, "Hey, you know, we bought this at duty free. Do I just run this through the machine?" He goes, "Yep, no big deal. You know, it's in the bag. We run it through and." Um, unfortunately, the TSA officer on the hind end of the machine, uh, she did not like that this wine was coming through the machine. And she said, you know what? I am going to have to un like take these each of these bottles out and test each one individually. Sounds so, like she, that sounds to me like she was really a fan of port. And she saw I, an op- she saw a special opportunity. You know, I I have got a lot of thoughts that I am not going to share on this podcast about that particular process. But I will say this. She dutifully, you know, sliced open, sliced open the bag, took the box, cracked open the box, the gift box, and and proceeded to test all five bottles of port. With her little, with the little wipey chemical thing. No, they, they have a machine. You put the bottle in a machine and it shoots lasers through it and it tells you if it's, you know, going to cause material harm to the airplane really yeah yeah so uh and again you're probably smart enough to check your booze <laughs> we we took ours through duty free which we'll talk about in a second anyway she te- checked all five bottles and three of them um did not pass she tried them again they did not pass so she looks at me and says, here's the deal. She goes, these, these failed twice. Our procedures, if they fail twice, you either have to dispose of them here or you have to take them back down and check them, put them in your check baggage. And I mean, think about the process we're at, right? Our check bag is long gone, right? You know, we're, we're at security now. So um, I said, well, I just bought all this wine. I wanna, I'm going to find a way to get it home. So she said, well, if you want to leave security, I'm going to have to ch- check all of your other belongings and I'm going to have to do a full and complete bodily search of you in oh order my. to let you leave security with oh your three God. bottles of wine and go take them back and check them some other way. 
Oh my goodness. So yes, on our trip, I got to experience what they affectionately call at Newark, the New Jersey massage. <laughs> so so I, got, I got to become uh, friends with a fine TSA gentleman named Jerome. I will not share a last name because nobody wants that. Jerome. Anyway, was, long was Jerome, story short. Jerome gentle, Sean. Jerome, Jerome was kind. He was, was kind. He was kind and gentle. Is, kind Jerome, and gentle. is Jerome now on your Christmas card list, Sean? Um, yeah, actually, you yeah. know, we're, 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 um, we're connected on yeah. several social media applications social now. Media, social media. <laughs> in fact, Jerome, Jerome, hey, Jerome, well, I think a shout out <laughs> to Jerome. Let's welcome in Jerome. Newark, the Newark Airport TSA agent, our newest subscriber to Drake's Exactly, Day. exactly. So um, to, to try and try and come to a conclusion on this, we ended up having to take all of the wine and the olive oil and vinegar that we bought, go back, plead and beg with United to let us put them in a box and send them home, um, which they ultimately were able to do. I will give a shout out to Chantille from United at Newark's terminal. She is amazing. She helped us get everything boxed up properly and then sent home. Um, and we told her that um, if they make it home safely, when we open them at Christmas time, we are gonna toast Chantille um, so for, for thanks and helping us sort out this problem. But, um, interestingly enough, Cannon, when we went back through security with the olive oil that we had already been through and had already passed, it failed twice again the next time through. Um, so I now have been able to debug the TSA system on how they check bottles. You simply ask the agent to twist the bottle in the machine about 15 degrees and retest it so that the labels don't interfere with your lasers. And that's how you get your bottles through TSA. You know, so, you don't get this kind of insight on all podcasts. No, you don't. You don't. You don't. Um, you don't. It, it also points out that there are two kinds of people in this world. There are problem solvers and there are procedure people. And I give a lot of credit to Jerome and his team. Um, by the way, Jerome was there the second time we went through. And let's just say he recognized me. You know, there are also two other kinds of people in the world relative to this topic, Sean. There are people like me who always check the alcohol that we bring back from foreign countries. And then there are people like you who are just, let's be honest, you are really looking forward to the pat down. That's okay, though. <laughs> I can respect that. I can respect that. And I think as we wrap the drink segment of today's episode, we should both raise a toast, which I'm doing right now with my whiskey Del back and we should raise a toast to both Chantille and Jerome who have given you let's be honest they've given you a glorious travel memory that you'll share for a long time 100% and go back to my native Polish Nostrovia to uh to Chantille and Jerome Nostrovia yes so yeah that was that was that was fabulous uh experience and uh final educational Point, don't buy booze at duty-free and bring it through the airport. Don't buy, don't buy booze at duty-free if your, if your uh, next flight's destination is not your final one. That Bingo. would be my, that would be my, that, so if you're doing a point to point, but if you have to recheck, it's not worth it. It's not and, worth it. for what it's, and for what it's worth, Sean, though I don't have a Chantille and Jerome in my life like you do, I have had challenges with that very thing in the past, buying liquids at duty-free 
um, which is why I now stick to giant bags of Haribo gummy bears at duty free <laughs> rather than bottles of alcohol. <laughs> so. All right, Canon, this week's data segment is brought to you by Analytics to Win. Canon, I know that you know this, but I'm going to ask you again. Did you know that up to 70% of companies don't have a data strategy? I did know that. I think I think it's even higher based on presentations and conferences I've been at lately and doing a raise, raise of hands. My, my, my non-scientific anecdotal mind is telling me that that number is too low. Either way, if your company needs a data strategy or you need your data strategy refreshed, you need Analytics to Win. Analytics to Win is a method that helps you craft your data strategy that includes assessments, tools, templates, um, all the things you need to uncover and prioritize exactly how you should be managing and analyzing your data. Most companies finish the process with Analytics to Win in weeks, not months. So remember, if your company needs a data strategy or needs your data strategy refreshed, check out analyticstowin.com today. That is analyticstowin.com. Canon, we are talking about data strategy fundamentals part two today. We had an opportunity to kind of tee all of this up in our last episode. We took folks through you know, some uh, reasons as to why you should have a data strategy. We talked about um, some of the reasons why we're seeing companies are not having a data strategy, pontificated on some of those reasons and gave some good insights there. Today, we are going to dive into the five data strategy fundamentals themselves. And in the spirit of kind of, you know, what is it? Uh, keeping it simple or tell them what you're going to tell them, tell them and then tell them what you told them, right? So we'll, we'll, right. we'll kind of go that that route today. Presentation so 101. Presentation exactly. 101. Yeah, I'm going to tell you what he, these are the five data strategy fundamentals that we are going to cover today. First thing is we're going to talk about setting up your proper definitions. And we're going to talk about alignment, aligning projects to objectives. The third fundamental is that we're going to talk about is called proper participation. Mm -hmm. And the, the fourth fundamental is leveraging assessments. And then the last fundamental is follow a process. So there you have them. Those are your five data strategy fundamentals. We're going to unpack each one of those for a few minutes each. Kind of give you some wisdom insight about each of those five fundamentals. We'll wrap up today telling you like what is in a good data strategy. We'll give you some real kind of tangible insight into how it looks and um, what the key components are so that you, you, you kind of have a vision for what a data strategy ought to look like. So with that, I think let's just dive right into it, Canon, okay? And let's dive in. Let's dive yeah, in. Let's do it. Yeah, we kicked this can around for a few minutes on our last episode. And um, I mentioned back then that the word strategy is probably the most misunderstood and um, maybe misused word in the business lexicon, right? Um, as consultants, and you pointed this out, I'll say rightly so last episode, that you know, we are consultants and we kind of love strategy. It's, it's a grand thing. Not to be confused with a grand strategy, which is a little different than what we're talking about today. Um, but I, as, as I talk to companies about a data strategy, one of the first things I have to do, Canon, is I have to tell them, well, 
what is a strategy? Because they people kind of think they know what it is, but most people in the room are probably thinking slightly different. So I define it like this. I define the word strategy as being a really important plan to achieve designated objectives. Okay. Two parts. Keep it simple. Okay. You don't need you don't need to take a course at the Harvard Business School to know what a strategy is. Okay. It is a really important plan to achieve designated objectives. You got two parts. You've got the objectives and you've got the plan. The key here is you want to, you want items on your plan that are clearly going to achieve the objectives that you define as part of your strategy. So again, I, I like to keep it simple and straightforward. Um, remember, I'm an engineer by education. I kind of think that way. Um, I don't know, Canon. What are your thoughts? Do you do you think that are there any shortcomings, or is that kind of work as you apply it to some of the the scenarios you're in in business? No, I think that works 100 percent. And I think there are there are analogs in the professional world to what you just outlined. I think your definition of a strategy having two parts, uh, objectives and a plan, you know, that aligns with kind of a wink, wink, classic definition of project management. Nobody, nobody likes to, frankly, nobody likes to do project management except for project managers. And I think even some of them don't particularly like to do project management. Uh, nobody likes to do project prioritization. Because the old maxim of project prioritization is that everybody is all for it as long as their stuff is prioritized first. That is an immutable fact. But really, when it comes to project management, it's like what you said about strategy. Project management, you know, what does what a, a project plan have to have on it? What does every project have to have? There are really just three components. And there's a lot of subcomponents, but there's just three components. There's a start. There's a bunch of stuff in the middle that you hope to get done. And then there's an end. So every project and every project plan needs to have those three components. Likewise, your strategy, why overly, comp why over overly complicated? There are objectives that you want to have. And then there's a plan that you apply to achieve those objectives. Completely agree. Yep. And... And and as as I've talked to companies and you know, there's people that are all they all they read the old business book from you know Stephen Covey. He had one of his seven habits of highly effective people, which was start with the end in mind. You know, as as I put this these all this stuff together for clients years ago, um, I discovered the quote from Sun Tzu's Art of War, where he says, "He who is destined to defeat first fights and afterwards looks for victory." And I think I think he beat Stephen Covey to the punch on this one. But it basically just says, listen, if if you're doing something that's worthwhile, do it with an idea of what objectives you're trying to achieve, which is essentially what is a strategy, right? So so that's the way I start this canon is I, I try and make sure that I help clients when they're talking about data strategy. Let's just start with the basic definition of strategy so we're going in the right direction. So then Makes we move sense. on and we kind of unpack it into data strategy at that point, right? And for for data strategies, we have to be a little bit we have to be a little bit more granular, right? We're kind of flying the plane a little lower. 
So I define data strategy, and you know, I'll I'll do it slow for our listeners, right? It's a concise plan that defines, aligns, and prioritizes your data management and analytics efforts. So there's really those, you know, there's those two pieces that we talk about data management and analytics that are really the core of your data strategy. And then we're still bringing in the fact that you've got, you know, a defined plan with objectives that you're trying to accomplish. Now, the key adjective of what you just said is, I believe, concise, because so many strategies end up just being so bloated and unworkable that they make them they become very, very hard to implement. But I think your your use of the word concise, so it's not just a plan with a gazillion different, perhaps related, perhaps not related components, but it's a concise plan that can be understood, can be digested, and can be implemented uniformly throughout an organization. I think that's really a key, a key piece. Yeah. Yeah. And I, and I'd say candidly, it's a little harder to, it's kind of like what Mark Twain said, right? If I had more time, I'd write you a shorter letter, right? <laughs> you know, so like, it, it can take a little bit more time to get it narrowed down to a concise plan, but it's worth, you know, I'll say the juice is worth the squeeze on that, right? The juice is worth the squeeze. Correct. So the last thing I kind of want to unpack on on the data strategy definition is I want to make sure we're all on the same page with like like the key components of data management versus analytics. Okay, I I I like to look at I'll say your data strategy from those two like ends of the spectrum. You know, your data management is really about how you're like provisioning and like curating and like storing and cleaning and organizing your data like taking care of your house. The, and the view is, has typically been that I found is the better you take care of your house or the better you take care of your data, the better analytics you're going to get out of it, right? It's kind of like throwing a party. The cleaner your house is, the nicer it looks, the more people are likely to enjoy your party, right? Right, right. Or you can just turn down the lights. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> or maybe both. Just... Analytics, on the other hand, Okay, is really how you're analyzing the data, converting it to information or insights, and then the way that you deliver those insights to your users. And what I have found, um, and I'm going to guess you may have as well, Canon, is that the clearer you formulate your analytical requirements, so that the clearer line of sight into what analytics you want your users to use or that they want to use, is going to help define clearer data management requirements. Makes okay? sense. Makes sense. So I like to say there's a symbiotic relationship between data management and analytics. It's, you know, they, they feed off of each other. And too many people are talking about building an analytics strategy that's void of data management, or they'll build a data management strategy that's void of analytics. To build a good data strategy, you got to look at both of those things together and understand that they, they have that symbiotic relationship. So Sean, so, let me ask you a question. Go for it. So I think that's that's very clear then what a data strategy is. But I think from from I think our clients and our listeners' perspectives, 
might be useful, this question. Talk a little bit about, if that's what a data strategy is, talk a little bit about what a data strategy isn't. Well, I I kind of see like like three genres of of deliverables or things, if you will, that are being classified as data strategies that are pretty popular in the marketplace that candidly, they're just not data strategies. So the first is, you know, we get these massive PowerPoint presentations filled with all kinds of techno babble that are kind of, you know, they're played up or, you know, or hyped up as being a data strategy. We talked a little bit about this in the last episode. You know, I mentioned a client that showed me a 60 slide presentation and they just felt belittled by the vendor um, thinking that they had to buy all of it and there was no clear direction as to what they should do from it. So that's kind of the first thing I see that's really being, it's kind of masquerading as a data strategy. You just undermined about 80% of the consultants in the world right there. Uh, Exactly. But you know, that's what we do on drinks and data. We do. We are here to undermine the uh, the charlatans in the data consulting world. Okay, we're bringing light. We're bringing light into the dark, dusty corners of the consulting. Exactly, world. exactly. the The other thing I see companies sold as a data strategy is just a sales pitch. I like to use, and I won't, I won't call out the the company in in general, but they were one of the advertisers of the Masters Golf Tournament earlier this year, and about. Every 20 minutes, you'd see a three-minute commercial about how they saved the world with their entire stack of technology. And, and if you buy all of this, you will have a data strategy. And I'm like, the phrase, buy all my stuff, I'm pretty sure it's a sales pitch, not a strategy, right? So um, that's, but that, that's pretty common. And then the last thing I see um, out there, Canon, masquerading as a data strategy is like, a great big like 80 page report that's really just a summary of all of your systems and data. And, you know, I humbly admit I've been a part of um, a consulting outfit that used to masquerade that type of a data strategy as well. And, you know, they would analyze systems and tell you every value of every field in certain transactional systems. And it made for a very thick report, but it made for a very, excuse me, a very thick report that was a big nothing burger because you didn't know what to do with it. So, um, so those are things that are not data strategies. And I think when we when we wrap things up on our episode today, we'll we'll give some pretty clear ideas as to what a good data strategy looks like. How's that sound? I think that's perfect. But I think you know, I think then that the, what occurs to me or the logical next question to ask you is: so now we we know what a data strategy is. We've talked about what a data strategy is not, and I. I agree with you entirely on on both of those uh, descriptions. So, but but if if a data strategy is not a sixty page PowerPoint presentation or is not a full stack investment from a household name technology company and it, or is not a ginormous summary. Of, of technical architecture, what what is what does it end up looking like? What is a data? What does a strategy, a data strategy, look like? Well, so there's there's really three key components that we're going to talk about as far as a data strategy. Um, I'll call them three deliverables. 
and when I when I do data strategies these days, Kendon, I I literally will sit down with our executive team and I'll drop off three sheets of paper okay. or three slides, right? And I'll and and I'll, I'll unpack these a little bit as we step through the remaining fundamentals. But we'll kind of let the cat out of the bag early. Um, the first is is a strategy matrix. We'll get there. Um, it's a it's it's all about aligning those projects back up to your objectives. The second thing that you're going to get in a data strategy is going to be a future state information uh, architecture. So like a Visio type diagram that shows you your key data systems and how they should look in the future state. And then the last thing we include in a data strategy is an org structure. Because, you know, inevitably, if you're going to if you're going to implement like new projects to implement new technology and you know, you're going to need to have the right kind of proverbial people in the right places on the bus. Right? Um, and that almost always involves some kind of people change or team change in the companies that I work with when we implement a data strategy, or at least when we call it out. So when you, when you think about that, I think what we should, what we should be mindful of if you're driving towards those three key deliverables, okay? And this kind of brings me back to fund data strategy fundamental number two, which is you really should need to focus on alignment. Companies are really good at building a laundry list of projects that they want to do. The hard part is figuring out which ones are important and which ones can be aligned to your overall objectives within the business. And, you know, we talked last last episode, you know, McKinsey found a big study that like 70% of companies haven't figured out how to align their data strategy to their business objectives. Um, we use a tool called a strategy matrix that's part of the analytics to win method. You guys have heard about it for weeks here on the on the Drinks and Data podcast. But analytics to win has a key template as part of that method called a strategy matrix that is its purpose in life is to help you align your data projects back up to your corporate objectives. That's what it's there for. Um, so, you know, to me, that that's that's one of these keys that you know helps you build that one-page document that you can put in front of the leadership team and say, "Here's what you need to do." And when they say, "Why should I do it?" I can point clearly how each project supports the overall corporate objectives of the business. So, if I can ask, is it is it a logical outcome? from that development of that matrix do you do you get kind of as a bonus prioritization falling out Absolutely. of that yeah that not is, only do you get prioritization you actually get empirical prioritization because right. when you so do take your some of the emotion it, take some of the emotion out of that process then. yeah and it and it what it does is it it helps ensure that your data strategy isn't built foundationally on the premise of the squeaky wheel gets the grease okay um, so many companies I walk into have people that they just have an inordinate amount of influence in the business. And it's kind of like, oh, well, whatever, whatever Bubba says, we, he gets, right? And when you use a process, a method that includes empirical prioritization, it lets you clear that those, you know, basically eliminate the squeaky wheel always getting the grease. It, it levels the playing field so everyone's voice can be heard. Yeah, something something that really definitely helps. But Makes to sense. get there, you know, to build that out, what you really need is 
data strategy fundamental number three canon, which is you've got to get proper participation from the business. I don't. Did you? Yeah, I, I know. I know you know a little bit about this because you get the opportunity to um, kind of fill in as the the you know IT leadership for companies on a fractional basis. I'm, I'm sure you've seen you know some consultants come in and try and make make progress on these types of things and help help me understand how how important it is to get other parts of the business involved. It's key. I mean, it's absolutely key, and I I appreciate you you know sort of you know, taking the, the off ramp to this topic, because it is absolutely key to the development of a, of a useful data strategy. It, it's also key, um, absolutely integral to ensuring that after projects that fall out of this process are prioritized and as implementations begin and change management begins to occur inside of an organization. If you do not have proper participation in all kind of aspects of, of this process, you're almost going to guarantee to be doomed to failure. You know, I used to joke, but I've done a number of CRM system, customer relationship management system implementations in my career. And I would always joke, that these days, especially the easiest thing in, in the world to do is to implement a CRM system. The, the technology is mature. These days, it's actually almost as easy as you can, you know, subscribe to set up a salesforce.com account. There it is. It's implemented. It's obviously overly simplified. But the easiest thing in the world is to put in technology. The hardest thing in the world to do is to get people to embrace that technology. And when you're talking about technology that is functionally, if not fundamentally, affecting the way that people go about their day-to-day -day work lives, uh, that if you don't have buy-in, if you don't have participation in all aspects of those projects, you will be absolutely guaranteed to have a successful implementation, but a failed project. Yeah. And that goes for whether it's something as discrete as a sales, as a CRM project or something that is as seemingly nebulous at times as the development of a data strategy. So one of the very first things that, that, that you know, you and I do, when we talk to a company about developing a data strategy, and usually it's because they're interested in that, we, we spend a significant amount of time talking about executive buy-in, executive alignment, up and down the departmental org charts. You mentioned development of organization charts earlier. Um, if, if an organization is not bought in at an executive level to this overall process, yeah, and you and I have done this before, we just tell them up front, you should stop. You should save your money. You don't want to hire us. You don't want to hire anybody to do this yep. because we can guarantee that you will have a substandard outcome. And that usually opens people's eyes pretty dramatically. You know, another thing too, and I know we're going to get to this, but I'll bring it up is... You know, when you talk about data management, there's always a question. People equate data with technology. 
and and at its bits and bytes level, it certainly is. Data resides in databases and data stores and file shares, and there's technology involved. But data management is really knowledge that an organization has about itself so that it can run effectively. And where that specific role lives inside of an organization is key. I'm a big believer that IT departments should be very involved in developing, maintaining care and feeding of data strategies, but they shouldn't be the owners of those data strategies. And certainly not all of the components of the outcome of positive data strategies and implementations. Now that's a little bit of a tangent from what you asked, but I'll, I'll toss it back over. I just can't stress enough the importance of buy-in and participation in the development of these strategies. Yeah, I, I think it's an important point to talk about IT leading but not owning the data strategy. I've I've found that um, I found that people in the business, in particular, they they seem to be the most notorious about it. Is that if if they let IT go and craft the whole data strategy. Then when they go to implement it, the business comes back and says, I'm not doing that. I wasn't, it's not my strategy. That's IT strategy, right? And so I like to make sure it gets teed up so that it's the, you don't, you don't build in the not my strategy excuse for the business. So, um, so really, you know, this, this concept of the three legs of the stool has been really helpful for getting proper participation. You got to have leadership as you talked about, they'll kind of grease the skids for you if you get leadership involved. IT's got to be involved because so much of the technology is foundation to a data strategy. And then the business has to be involved because they need to tell, help shape how you're going to use it. So it's really, you know, always think of those three legs of the stool. Absolutely. Um, you know, things we find with this, it's not easy to do the scheduling, go in with your eyes wide open. It's tough. Um, but um, but you, you, you got to think of that, those three legs of the stool for it to be successful. One of the things that I found Canon that is useful in garnering proper participation in building a data strategy is to use assessments. Now, this isn't something you just hear about on, I'll say, a normal, you know, seeing a normal business presentation or, um, or you know, seeing you know a white paper. But I'm just gonna I'm gonna just kind of lay it out like it is. Assessments that ask questions where you have to give a score that have results is a fabulous way of getting people to talk. Okay. There's some kind of, and, and you're, you're the liberal arts guy here, right? So you chime in, what is the human psychology about taking an assessment, right? Like pe people, they just, I think they just want to know how they're doing, right? Well, you'd think so, but especially when you, when you take assessments in a business context, I mean, Let's be honest. We we made we as a culture made Mark Zuckerberg ridiculously wealthy by posting pictures of our pets and taking fun little silly assessments on Facebook when Facebook first rolled out to the world. And really what we were doing was we were helping all of those companies, be it Facebook, now Meta, and other companies, um, harvest vast quantities of data about 
ourselves. But that was okay because it was fun and we got something for it. We got enjoyment. People don't like to take assessments in the business context because they feel like they're being graded. And if there is one truism for a business assessment, it's that people, no matter how much you work to disprove it, they believe that you're keeping their score and that you will report on how they have done as if there is some ideal outcome that they as individual professionals should be achieving. People are nervous. People don't like to take assessments. Plus, it's hard for people to be honest sometimes in a business context because if they know that they suck in one particular area, you know, they don't want to call their own baby ugly. Yeah. And it's hard. And I think when we do these kind of processes, one of the most important things that we can do and do do is try to make people very at ease, introduce humor, assure people that there is no right or wrong answer, that a score of seven in one area is not necessarily better than a score of three. Yeah. So it's, it's a, it is a challenge. I'll say the other thing that we do when we do these assessments is I try to keep them from being an individual assessment. So to your point, what what I found helps kind of get more enthusiasm for the process is if we do it as a group. So I will facilitate the assessment with a group and make the group decide on an answer or a score amongst the group. So what's great about that is it gets them talking so that the group can arrive at a score that is applicable to the group. Um, That kind of softens it, Canon, a little bit so that no one person feels entirely culpable for, say, a bad score. That makes sense. So it's a a collective admission of success or failure or neutrality. And, And you know what's nice is it gets them agreeing at times that they've had a collective failure, you know? Um, Because kind of admitting that they have a problem is oftentimes the first step in solving that problem. That's true. And And then they can all gang up on Jerome and go and fire him afterwards. Exactly. 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 It's always Jerome. But anyway. It's always always Jerome. It's always Jerome. the, The assessments, when facilitated in the right way, can get people talking and coalescing about these concepts in a way that if you did individual interviews, you might never, you might never surface that information. Right. And then candidly, you can track that. But again, you're kind of tracking the collective. And then you can come back and reevaluate and see how the group is doing at a future date. You get get that data and serve it as benchmarks. Um, And when you talk about building a data strategy, assessments are great at highlighting where your weaknesses and where your strengths are. So you can either, you know, stop up some gaps in those or you can capitalize on the good stuff, right? Absolutely. Well, I'm going to I'm going to take a flyer and guess that you're the last fundamental that you want to talk about is the the importance of following a specific and defined process. <laughs> you know it. I mean, again, um, you know, think think back to a conversation we had with uh, a prospect uh, just a couple of weeks ago. You know, Cannon, you and I were on again talking to this CIO, and he was he was really, I think, refreshingly honest with us in in that he said, 
how do I know this is going to work? Because I'm only going to get one shot at this with the board, right? It's not like it's not like most of you know most companies they don't get a chance to do you know to kind of try a, a data strategy out for size and then say oh I'll, I'm gonna I'm gonna go do I'm gonna go pick a different firm and go do another one right that doesn't usually happen so the importance of getting it right the first time um, you know that's critical and what I have found you know and again this is the engineer in me talking right. There's a reason that all Ford F-150s have the same dimensions when they come off the production line. It's because they have they follow a process, right? There's a process for making it work. Now, I'm not intimating that every data strategy is going to be identical that comes through a process. But if you want reliable, repeatable results in the in the in executing the construction of a data strategy, by all means, follow a process. A process is going to give you more reliable um, you know, results as a part of it. And I think the other thing, Canon, is if you decide that you want to go back and refresh your data strategy, you know, six months or 12 months or, you know, two years later, you can follow the same process and you're already, you're better at it now, right? You'll be able to get through it faster and you'll also be able to have um, results that you can compare to your last strategy, you know, use as benchmarks. Makes perfect sense. Makes perfect so, sense. So those are your five data strategy fundamentals. You know, the super quick high level recap. You got to, you know, start with your definitions, move into your alignment. You got to have your proper participation, leverage your assessments and follow a process. Um, with that, you can arrive at that data strategy that I defined, which again, those three deliverables that I think make up the proper data strategy is your strategy matrix, your future state architecture diagram, and your org chart. Cover your, your people, process, and technology elements with those three deliverables, and you're going to be well on your way to having a successful data strategy that should serve your company pretty well. Um, Canon, any closing thoughts on, on fundamentals of a data strategy? I think it works. I think it resonates. I think it makes sense. And the last comment that I would make about the, the last segment of following a process, one thing that business people like to understand is how you have achieved an outcome or how you have achieved certain results. And when you develop a strategy and you can clearly lay out that process that you followed to achieve an outcome, that provides a extraordinary amounts of credibility. So I can't stress the importance of that enough. Absolutely. Awesome. All right. Well, with that, we're going to close this week's episode of the Drinks and Data podcast. Um, as usual, we close each week with a drinks and data proverb. This week's drinks and data proverb is drinks and data both can make you look stupid. Just marinate on that a little bit. <laughs> marinate on that a little bit. Exactly. All right. Well, we want to thank you for taking time to listen. We ask that you please give us a review. We love five-star reviews. It would help us out greatly in our rankings so more people get an opportunity to hear Drinks and Data. Um, so you can also check out our website at drinksanddata.com. So that's drinksanddata.com. Um, we're going to have some videos coming up soon. Um, you'll hear some, uh, there'll be some links to each of the episodes. You can rate our Drinks and Data Proverbs and uh, support us through your participation in visiting the website. So we look forward to having you join us over at drinksanddata.com. You can also leave us comments and questions, which we would very much welcome. 
Um, so with that, thank you so much to listening to this episode of Drinks and Data. We hope you'll become one of our dedicated listeners. Till then, cheers, everyone. Cheers, everyone. Thanks. Thanks.